Well, hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, January 25th. Can you believe the first month of 2017 is almost gone? Wow. I thought 2016 flew by. 2017 is on that Usain Bolt track, man. I mean, they are. It is hauling. Uh, welcome. This is the Promotional Mar Practice live chat. My name is Luke Thomas. You might know me from MMA Fighting and a few other places. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Today on the podcast, we will get to, of course, uh, UFC on Fox 23, which I don't quite know why I'm really excited for, but I guess I am. I'm very, very excited. I don't normally say that. Like I'm For a non-big pay-per-view, I don't get too amped up, but uh, for some reason, I'm really excited for this one. And we're fresh off the heels of Bellator 170, Tito versus Chael, which was uh, a very Bellator event, if you know what I mean. Um, there's a lot of news and notes going around. Michael Bisping doesn't want to fight Yoel Romero, wants a big check. Tyron Woodley's out there still preaching his cause. Nate Diaz thinks he's been on the shelf too long, uh, and a thousand other things. Is JDS fighting Stephen Miocic? We don't know. Uh, lots to get to. Plus, there's Submission Underground 3 this weekend. There's a lot going on, even if it is a relatively quiet-ish weekend in the sport of mixed martial arts. Best place to get your questions in, of course, is going to be the MMAfighting.com. Comments that turn green get priority, but not exclusivity. Um, let me do this. Do you all want a t-shirt update? A real one, because I know Jer Jeremy the Hater Botter thinks they're not real. Uh, I am going to pay for them today, which means they should be available in three weeks. And they will be available on MMA Warehouse. So there you go. That's a real thing. I will pay for them today. And in three weeks, you'll be able to get them on MMA Warehouse, where you got like... Uh, the MMA Beat shirts, I think Ariel had his own one up there. Um, they'll fund two causes, an animal shelter here in your nation's capital, and then uh, another animal shelter overseas. So that's what it'll go to. I won't get a dime of it, and you guys will uh, get to have the shirts. So there you go. When the link is live, I'll, of course, let everyone know. But there is your truth. Yay! For the first batch, they will be in limited supply. But we'll see how the first batch sells. If it does well, um, then we'll make many different batches. And yes, I am having Coke Zero today because I am out of caffeinated beverages to uh, to drink. By the way, I did that 23andMe genetic study. Have you guys ever done that? You spit in a tube. It's like Ancestry.com, where it's a little bit more involved. Uh, first of all, I had a higher percentage of Neanderthal DNA that I'm comfortable with, which means I'm probably prone to diseases. But I got marked for a number of different, or I got measured, I should say, and tested for a number of different conditions related to what kind of genes you could pass on in, in reproduction. I don't have any of those. But I had a few different interesting gene markers, one of which was um, that I have a gene marker for a higher caffeine tolerance, which means I will probably be able to drink more caffeine than the average person and might even, in fact, need it. Um, so I didn't realize that. So I don't feel caffeine quite the same way that other people do. Who knew? All right. Let's get to that with the, um, what you call it, out of the way. Mmm, delicioso. All right, first question. Thoughts on Scott Coker pulling Chael from the Submission Underground match? I thought grappling matches were fair game for MMA fighters to compete in. Now, I have not seen a Bellator contract recently, but a lot of the language mirrored very closely the language of the UFC. And in that language... It states any kind of martial arts uh, exhibition or competition, um, they have sole promoter unless otherwise noted. And I think 
if there was a Bellator fighter who wanted to compete at the upcoming, uh, I don't know what the uh, let's say they want to go uh, to um, what's the next big one in my area? Uh, so it's the one in Raleigh. It is the um, Toro Cup. If you want to go to the Toro Cup, you could do that, right? No problem. Probably wouldn't care, but Chael is not your average ordinary fighter. There's a contractual provision stipulating that they can forbid this. And just think about how his week would have gone. This is Bellator's vantage point, I'm assuming. Um, he lost to Tito, which is fine. I don't think in and of itself that's so bad. But if you watch the Monday Morning Analyst, uh, you probably, or even if you didn't, you probably came to you know, one of two conclusions. One, some of you believe that it is fixed. And even if you don't believe that, you don't believe that Chael looked all that great for a variety of different reasons. And I think I, I subscribe to the... Uh, the latter of those two theories that um, a guy who's older against a guy who is underrated, frankly, in this only in the sense of, I mean, yes, he's 42 on his last fight, but everyone had mocked Tito so mercilessly. They forgot that he actually had some ability. Um, and it looked like he was fighting clean when who knows how long he was not fighting clean and that it, he just looked poor. And it was a poor, it was a, it was just not a full effort from him. You didn't see just this ferocity to get out of things uh, that you typically see. He just didn't fight all that hard. And I think if, so if you had that on a Saturday, then he gets cut from The Apprentice, which is not the end of the world. And he gets cut for cheating. Now I actually wound up and went going back and seeing why he got cut for cheating. I actually thought he, what he did was great, but you know, they have to be all uh, pearl clutching on these reality shows, I guess. I won't spoil it for you, but I didn't think it was that big a deal, but it was technically cheating, I guess. So then he gets cut from that for cheating. And then he would go against Gary Tonin, who he would have a considerable size advantage over. Gary is not a big guy, um, but who he had a considerable, considerable skills differential in. Gary would, I think, chew him up. And uh, so that would be a real bad week for him competitively. And it would be a real bad week for Bellator from appearances. And who knows, man? You know, Gary's not one of these guys who hits a lot of rear naked chokes or gu guillotines. He hits a lot of inside heel hooks. He hits a lot of knee bars. You know, he can do some damage. So uh, I can see why Bellator exercised that clause. It's not one they've exercised a lot. It's not one you can accuse them of, of essentially being ironclad or un not understanding. A lot of these guys go and compete in other, um, you know, tournaments as it relates to, you know, keeping themselves fresh and, and um, you know, uh, at the highest level that they can be. But this seemed to be more like, you know, trying to plug a hole promotionally that had nothing really to do with um, preparing for an elite competition. This was just, uh-oh, we're out of options. Let's think of something. And I understand why Chael would go that direction, but I I can understand why Bellator did what they did. And now, here's the other part of that conversation. If you're a fighter and you're watching this, you're probably saying, okay, I can understand why Bellator did that, but nevertheless, to me, it matters more to have say over my own career and not be at the whim of a promoter who can stop me from doing these things outside of contact that has nothing to do with them. I am after all an independent contractor and I can understand that perspective very much as well. But unless you negotiate that in either collectively or individually, well, you know, what is it? What is there really to say about this? That's sort of my overall perspective on it. Okay. Follow-up question. Is Bellator really on the rise? Luke, although many analysts maintain the fact that Bellator is currently experiencing its best years, 
I'm really not convinced of this sentiment in terms of major draws. Tito versus Chael drew great ratings for the promotion, but Tito is now retired and Chael's stock has dropped significantly. I'm not so sure about that. It hurt him, sure. But I don't know that it can be rehabilitated. One of Bellator's biggest stars, MVP, recently had an underwhelming performance that ultimately turned off many fans to his appeal. The rematch between Rampage and King Mo has been made, but the first fight turned out to be much more boring than advertised. It was also a devastating loss when their biggest draw, Kimbo Slice, passed away back in 2016. That's certainly true. Aside from the from perhaps Fedor, there doesn't seem to be any other stars that can consistently garner the high ratings that Tito Ortiz and Kimbo Slice were able to. What exactly leads people to believe that Bellator has a bright future ahead? This is a very good question. And this one I've struggled with as well. Um, a lot of the issues you raise are really important. Number one, Tito did some really big events for them. He was part of that Rampage versus King Mo card, obviously on the Bonner fight. Obviously, he was part of the first Dynamite card, right? He was good for them. Obviously, he was part of this card as well. Like, he has been a big help for them. Can we just take a second back and also examine this for just a second? I don't feel like we ever talk about this. Tito going to Bellator when it was first announced was like a bit of an afterthought, if not a joke, if not greeted with silence. And in the end, it wound up being really great for him. <laughs> really great for him. Let me pull this up here real quick, just to, just to take a look at his resume, just so I'm very clear about what's, what, what this says and what it doesn't. This is Tito Ortiz's Bellator run. So he had... So he had, remember, he lost to Liddell, drew with Evans, then lost to Machida, then Griffin, then Hamill, beat Bader in that surprise UFC 132 guillotine, then lost to Rashad badly, then lost to Little Nog badly, then lost to Forrest relatively badly, then comes out of Bellator 120. He was supposed to fight, you know, Rampage and all that stuff fell apart. Then he fought Alexander Shlomenko, crushed him, fought Bonner, beat him. It wasn't a good, greatest fight, but it did well. Lost to Liam McGeary at Bellator Dynamite, the first ever which was fine because, you know, Liam's a better fighter, and then just beat Chael. Like, he had two fights in 2014, a fight in 2015, and a fight in 2017. Now, it's not an overly competitive schedule, but going to Bellator for Tito made a ton of sense for both parties and worked out great. Like, Tito made a great choice going there. I don't know how anyone can argue. I would not put it on the same level. Not even close. Not even close to Thierry Henry leaving uh, Premier League and going to MLS for the terrible Red Bulls because you can make a clear argument that Thierry Henry uh, was the best, or I should say is the best MLS player ever. Now just think <laughs> think about that. But, but, but the point being is um, in transitioning to this lesser league, he was able to contribute a lot for that team and for that um, uh, the league itself, for the sport itself, uh, and was able to still uh, do a lot for himself as well. And I think in a in a very you know macro version, because the more you zoom in, it's not nearly the same. I don't think Tito is the best Bellator fighter ever by any stretch of the imagination. But nor was he, you know, uh, I mean, what Thierry Henry did in in you know for Arsenal is you know he's one of the best players ever. But um, but you get the idea that there is something to be said for he went to this lesser league and it was both and, and again for him for Tito it was more rehabilitative which I think he needed to be for Thierry it's just get some extra cash while he still could beat up on these scrubs 
But the point being was there was a real mutual benefit. Um, there was this, uh, even, even with his declined performance, he was still able to be competitive with what they had. And he was able to make it work for um, the kind of audience that they're trying to covet. And, you know, I just feel like that second act in his career, the Bellator act, was so smart for Tito. Such a smart move. Totally worked out. If he stays gone like he he did, he won three of his last four fights. Man, that's pretty great. That's really, really great. Like, Tito made a great call going to Bellator, and it was wise of Bellator to use him. Now, to answer the question about what Bellator's headed generally, so at this point, Tito is ostensibly now gone. Kimbo Slice, rest in peace. These are two of the biggest draws they've ever had. Um, and, you know, you got Chael. What's going to happen with that? I don't know. As you mentioned, MVP, certainly everyone seems to think he's the next big thing, but there's a lot of reason to think also that he hasn't quite turned that corner, that his style just doesn't quite work, at least in that circular cage, if not in MMA, um, or at least he can't quite bring it to life in a, in a way that maybe we haven't seen him in a while. Fedor is certainly interesting and probably going to be good for a little while, but how, how much longer can that um, – can you count on him to compete? I mean, maybe you get one, maybe you get three fights out of him. That'd be amazing. But maybe you just get one, two. So it's just hard to say exactly. Like, it's not clear what you have. But you talk to people about the UFC, they say kind of similar things. Yes, 90% of the best fighters go in the UFC, but everyone's like, well, without Connor and Ronda, who they really have? John Jones is on ice. Heavyweight's as thin as it's ever been. Stipe is not a real draw. Daniel Cormier and Anthony Johnson, they're great, but they're not real draws. You know, Tyron Woodley's out there making noise, but he's a very polarizing champ. Who knows if he'll be a champ after UFC 209. Uh, yes, yes, Conor McGregor is a big uh, star, but wh what about Nurmagomedov and uh, Ferguson? Are they real pay-per-view stars? And you can just go on down the list. In other words, you know, yeah, there's in any kind of league, no matter if the business model is pay-per-view and then some television, or in the case of Beltor, just television, there's going to be a couple of standout figures, and their contributions are going to be important, but in the long run, fleeting, what is there really to sustain you? And I, I kind of feel like if you want to cast some skepticism about the potential for Bellator, that is certainly one way to look at it, but I don't really look at it that way. Number one, their ability to do well overseas is a real thing. These events that we don't really pay attention to in Israel, or maybe you didn't watch the one in Ireland, th those were successful for them, not merely for their local um, uh, television partners there, but in ways that they're forming alliances with other regional organizations like Bama. They're doing another show with Bama, at the, I think at the SSE, if I'm not mistaken. Um so that's kind of an important thing for the development. Uh, it shows a way to make money overseas that is for Viacom and an incredibly important thing. Um, obviously, still they have a major contribution that they can show live, you know, not DVR proof, but pretty good for them. Um, I feel like they have slowly, they've just slowly kept swinging the axe and they've acquired a fair amount of interesting. Uh, free agents has every one of them worked out to the best of their hopes no but you know getting Matt Mitrion was kind of big getting Benson Henderson was kind of big they might get Ryan Bader they might get Lorenz Larkin um, they got Fedor they they made great use out of Tito in his second act they got Chael and I know Chael didn't have a strong performance but I suspect he'll have a better rebound performance after this at least you know one would hope so to answer your question are they going to be able to match these kinds of heights on a continual basis no I don't think they have anyone on that roster who can really elevate them to that space. And that's probably a real long-term strategic concern that they have. On the other hand, the winds of MMA change. They are building a slow army from the top down and the bottom up. 
Um, their average event doesn't do all that well, but they have shown a capacity now to consistently be able to draw in a bigger event. This did over a million dollars at the gate that before that was unheard of for Bellator before Scott Skoker came, came along. And now they've done it a number of different times. And I know for UFC, you get so accustomed to that. It's such a big deal. But to have another promoter who can who can get over a million dollars at the gate, that is nothing you can take for granted. That is very, very hard to do. You should always see that as a benchmark. It's not that if you do less than a million, you are doing poorly. Just the question is how many promoters, frankly, in combat sports can in the United States, because Glory can do really well overseas. Um, and they can do well here too, but they do really well overseas. But you know, if you're just in the combat sports ways, how many can draw over a million dollars at the gate? There are not many. There really are not many. Um, and that's just an important thing to consider. So for me, I think that declaring there's this new dawn of Bellator excellence certainly would be very premature. And as you note, all the guys that keep doing well, really well for them, they get a few fights out of them, and then they're on their merry way. But Scott Coker is a very clever guy. There's a bigger plan in place here in terms of the international growth. Um, they have they continue to make inroads and in free agent gains. I also think you're going to see a lot of more free agents, not so much like signed up super quickly by Bellator, but I think you're going to see a lot of them let go by the UFC, right? Just guys they're just not really going to heavily pursue. I think they're going to trim their roster a little bit, and that's going to make things a lot better for Bellator um, in the long run. So um, so let's not declare this the dawn of the Bellator renaissance, but at the same time, let's also recognize that um, they're making real progress to make a stable product, and they have, yes, been fortuitous, but I think they also create their own luck and their own thinking about how they add those real high-end headliners to um, to create events like you saw on Saturday. All right. Look, are you taking any interns? If you are, I'll send an email. Uh, I get emails about so-and-so asking to work with me for free. These are very generous offers. I appreciate all of them, but I wouldn't know what to do with someone if I had them. It'd be more work for me to manage somebody else than it would be for me to get some help from someone, I think. I don't know. So I don't think MMA fighting's taking any inter interns, although I could be wrong. But I, I definitely, for the time being, I, I don't think I can make it work. I, it would need to be worth your while, too. I don't know that I can do that right now. Um, okay, Tito's choke I can live with. About it is not okay. What do you think? I've seen you comment on Tito holding the choke too long against Chael, and I agree that it wasn't that big a deal. But... I think he went over the line at the presser when he went on the record and said he held on to it because he had ill will towards Sonnen. He should have kept his mouth shut. You can't let a fighter get away with holding a choke too long and openly, publicly almost brags that he did it to hurt his opponent. If you don't punish him, what message does that send? Okay. This has been actually, to me, the most interesting debate coming out of Bellator. I know some people you know, want to think that the fight-fixing comments and allegations are the most interesting thing. Those are not that interesting to me. Not entirely uninteresting, but not that interesting. This is the one that actually captures my attention. Whether or not there, what, what do you say about Tito holding the choke too long? Because here are the facts of the situation. Like, th there are no facts in dispute here. He admitted he held the choke too long. And he admitted he held the choke too long because he wanted to send a message or because he was angry. That's interesting. That's interesting because we're not debating over whether he held it too long. Like, Paharis holds it too long and then goes, what happened? I don't know. That's not what this is. This is a guy openly telling you, yeah, I know, for sure I held it too long on purpose. Right? So now what do you do with that? Really, this will, I think, um, 
this will just sort of boil down to what your own sense of decency is and what you see as a punishment to deter future punishment or what sort of retribution is justified given the offense. I think those are sort of the three things in play here. Hold on. Here we are. Um, so so here's, here's a position I would not adopt, and I don't think you can defend. In the sense of, am I going to you know, lose sleep over it? No, I don't mean that. But I mean, like, I don't care if guys hold the chokes too long ever. Ever. I just don't care. Let them hold it. I don't, it doesn't bother me. That, to me, is a very unjustifiable position, right? Where you literally not in any case ever care if someone holds something too long. That, that seems insane. Okay, so that's not what we're talking about here. Um, for me, let me tell you how I view this one, and you're certainly welcome to disagree, but this is sort of where I come down on it. Um, number one, he was asked a question, and he was honest about it. What would you rather him do? Would you rather him say, no, I didn't realize, I, I just didn't see John there, or I didn't see the tap, or I didn't feel the tap. You want him to lie to you? I'm not going to commend Tito for holding the choke too long, but I am going to commend him for manning up to holding the choke too long. Like, at least he's honest with you. That's what you want. How many times have you heard, I saw John Fitch today, and I told him I had a bone to pick with him. Not like a real one, but the point being was I had an interview with him before his Jake Shields fight. He was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to fight 10 more years, yeah. And then after the fight, he was like, oh, my MRI was sketchy. I don't know if I'm going to do this anymore. And I understand why he couldn't say that before the fight, but at the same time, it's just like so many of these pre-fight interviews, guys are just da-da-da-da-da-da. They're just saying stuff just to get through it because they have 50 phone calls to make that day. You know, here's a case where a guy at the end of his career is telling you the truth too long on purpose. Okay, I appreciate that candor. That doesn't absolve him from blame. I'm just sort of noting it. Secondly, um, I don't think when you say held a choke too long, how long are we talking, right? Because part of the, all the other argument is why did Cheryl tap? It wasn't that much of a choke, right? There was nothing closing on one side of the carotid arteries there on chael it was it was one side and it looked like kind of like a jaw crunch like a face crunch it's really hard to tell because the ear was in the chest so it's the ear and the chest but it's not he didn't have both sides so i'm sure it was painful and i'm sure chael tapped for a reason but part of the argument is well that choke was barely on so like which is it the choke was barely on or it was a, a barely on choke that was held too long like this wasn't like an arm bar where the person tapped and they kept going and it cracked through in other, in, in other words if you're going to measure um, if you're going to measure the malfeasance here, it seems to me that the way in which you do that is one, the length of how much it went on past the tap and B, the damage incurred. And the length is, I think, problematic. The damage incurred is negligible. It's not clear to me that anything bad happened to him as a consequence. Um, and that's not merely something you measure after the fact, right? In other words, um, uh, the point being is, imagine you had someone in an armbar and you knew it was in and you felt the tap and then you kept going to break it, right? That to me is really egregious because a choke, when you have it in, you even if it's fully locked in, perfect, right? Perfect back to chest, elbow, center of the chin, hand tucked behind the head. I mean, you've got him dead to rights, right? What's the worst that's going to happen? Assuming you get separated, let's say a second or two afterwards, which is about what happened for Tito and Chael, they'll go to sleep. You'll put them to sleep. There's potentially more long-term damage, but it's virtually negligible. It's not the case if you break somebody's arm. There is a willful intent within a, with a heel hook or an arm bar or a knee bar or something like that where you're trying to 
damage the corporeal the structure, um, the body of somebody. You're trying to damage their architecture. And that to me, long in one of those kinds of situations, that's not the same as holding a choke too long. And I mentioned on my post-fight show that I did on my own YouTube channel, there's a gym up in New York City. I, I, <laughs> um, their competition team, now this is not the case for anyone who's not on their competition team, but their black belt competition team, they have a no-tap rule to chokes. You cannot in the training room tap to chokes. Now think about that for a second, right? If, it, if, if I'm not saying that's a healthy thing to do, or that I recommend that for everybody else, especially non-black belts, but uh, they don't have that rule for any other submission. Now, imagine you have that with a sub that's not even nearly as locked on. In other words, we have to assess sort of not merely the damage and not merely the length of them holding it, but like what what sort of what sort of malice can you have holding a choke that's barely on? You can't have that much malice about it. You can be angry about it, but that's a very different degree of malice. When you have someone's armbar dead to rights, that's a very different thing for me. And you can see it because you have elite competition teams that the only thing they allow that for is chokes. They don't allow for any other kind of body manipulation, joints, elbows, you know, uh, knees, back cranks, nothing. You have to tap to those. Um, you know, at least they don't, have, they don't have a, they don't force you to not tap to them. You can just not tap to some of those chokes. And again, that's not healthy, but that's not the end of the world either. So for me, um, terms of what kind of submission was it how badly was it applied how long did he hold it what does that tell us about his malice and what was the problem after the fact and in all of those cases the only one you can really point to was it's a really uh not okay thing to hold a submission too long okay fair enough if they had find him I, I would, i'd have been totally okay with that you know take take some of his money there's no problem there but big john mccarthy was like don't do anything about it and big john mccarthy said he handled it and, I, and frankly i think we want an mma where the referee has that kind of latitude and power, where if the referee says, I was able to separate them, it wasn't like another referee had to jump in there and get him off. It wasn't like I had to punch Tito in the face to get him off. I put a, I put a thumb in his larynx and I drove him down and he let go of it. And that was the end of it. Okay, that's, you know, uh, we want the conflict to be stopped. And I by that I mean the dispute over whether or not this is a problematic thing in as early a stages as possible. If it, if the referee can stop it before the commission wants to get involved, that I think is something we should cheerlead. I think that we, we don't, I don't trust these commissions to met out justice in a helpful way for the most part. I trust Big John McCarthy far more than that to say, if nothing needs to be done, I'm going to listen to Big John because I really trust his judgment there. I think if he felt like there was some real despicable evil act that had taken place, he probably would have done something about it. But giving fighters latitude, I think, is important. And there was another guy who used to, I think his name was Ryan Pitt. He was a doctor who used to write for SureDog. And he had an article, and I, I got to find it. But he, what he was basically saying was, when these guys are in the middle of fights, we, we talked about Alistair Overeem getting dropped and then coming up and being like, oh, Miocic tapped. And then you show him the video, and he's like, uh, he couldn't quite remember it. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about guys, when, when you're in the middle of a fist fight, the amount of chemicals washing over your brain um, to help you through this act, this incredibly dangerous activity. I don't know that guys are really thinking all that rationally. I mean, they're not thinking so irrationally that they forget all their training and they just go in there and wing punches with their eyes closed. They don't lose their capacity to reason completely, but at the margins, things begin to fray a little bit. I think having a little bit of forgiveness for guys. Now, I understand Tito went and admitted it, 
But I think just generally having understanding that guys are not going to act like themselves in cases like that is also something to take into account. Tito admitting it later that he did it uh, sort of doesn't help that argument altogether. But if a guy after a fight is over does a crotch chop, in you know, or or something, you know, and right after a fight is over, I just don't think they're thinking clearly. They're different people. Um, they're different people during a weight cut. They're different people not during a weight cut. So I don't. I just don't get too angry about it. But in the end, for me. Um, I just don't know that it really made all that much of a difference. Ultimately, in the health of Chael Sonnen, um, Big John McCarthy was able to act quickly. I don't think there's a whole lot of malice in that one. Some, but not a whole lot. And um, and in the end, I don't know that not finding Tito is going to encourage other guys to do it more. That's not the read on this that I get. I don't think all of a sudden guys can be like, you know what? It's like a fence grab. You can just do it. Maybe, maybe if the, and if it is, we can revisit this conversation. But for the time being, I just don't see a whole lot of uh, reason to to get. Um, you can be a little bit angry at Tito. I think. I think having a little bit of anger towards him is is fine. But a lot. Mm. All right, mandatory title defenses for Bisping, Connor, and others. I am glad someone is asking about this. Bisping is chasing money fights again, despite having more than worthy challengers. Very true. Woodley, Aldo, Connor, Cody, and Nunez are also campaigning for other fights other than the contenders in their divisions. It has pros and cons, but could there be a case for some kind of mandatory title defenses or at least some kind of structure that secures some kind of predictability? What are your thoughts? I think I'm more along the latter, that there has to be some kind of structure that secures some kind of predictability. That's not a very helpful way to frame a conversation, but it's the one that I know best. Um, let me just say this. Bisping's a little bit different than Woodley, Aldo, Connor, and Cody, and Nunez. Because as I understand it, from both talking to Mike, I mean, he didn't declare this outright, but in talking to Mike, the general sense that I get from him is that, and he stated something to this effect in a Rolling Stone interview, but I've, I've talked about it with him before. I think once he loses his title, he's done. You know, like he just doesn't want to fight anymore. The guy's 37. He has beat his body to hell. He's done a lot. He's probably gone about as far as he's going to go. I think if he can keep winning fights, then he will. But the reason why he wants a big money fight is because it might be his last fight, period. I'm a little bit more sympathetic to that. On the other hand, he just got the Dan Henderson fight, a guy far outside the contendership. And, um, you know, how many of those special fights do you want? Or do you think a person should get? So I'm half. I'm a little bit more sympathetic towards Michael because of those concerns. I, I don't. I, his is more understandable. Someone like Cody Garbrandt. It's like I love Cody, but you're 25. You got work to do. Same with Amanda Nunes. I mean, maybe she doesn't have. Maybe she has a few fights left because she says she wants to raise a family. I can understand that. But even then, look. If there's no contender, that obvious one that makes sense. And you got a nearby weight class that you could easily move up to and do something else for. Um, I, I, you know, those are situations where you can discuss it, but I don't know how many times we have to see this. These guys doing these fights like this creates chaos in the divisions after the fact. And everyone wants to pretend that it doesn't do that. It does do that. That's not a reason to never do them. That's a reason to seldom do them. Um, and maybe 205 was the right one. Right. It, certainly it, it made a lot of us happy and it, it accomplished something really great for the sport. So I'm not going to cry about it, 
But I just mean it needs to be something like that before you can really do it. And I don't feel like in any of these situations that's what we have. Now, as I mentioned before, some of this belly aching that we have, you and me, um, needs to be put to bed a little bit because ultimately Woodley is fighting the number one contender two fights in a row. And and uh, Cody's going to fight TJ Dillashaw, the number one contender. And we'll see what happens with Amanda Nunes. She might fight Holm or Durandamy, but if she fights Shevchenko or Pena, depending who wins this weekend, that'll be that too. And Connor, I mean, I don't know who he's going to fight next. Maybe it's Woodley, but if it's number Gamedov or Ferguson, then you can say that, okay, like these guys might go out and publicly lobby, but ultimately what's happening is that very few of these are, are being made. And, and so I don't, I'm not saying let your guard down, but I am saying let's not panic until more contenders are just routinely, and I mean more than what's happening now, like routinely getting ignored. So I think Bisping should fight Romero, and I think that could be a great co-main event. It could even be a great main event, and you're going to get Woodley versus Wonderboy too. We'll see what happens with Aldo. We'll see what happens with Connor. Cody's got his hands full, and Nunes is about to have her hands full. So, um, so we'll see. But in terms of creating some kind of structure, I just feel like this needs to be negotiated with the promotion, right? And we mentioned it with Connor before a little bit. Connor wanted to defend, wanted to keep his featherweight belt and not defend it, and that's okay up to a point, especially if you're healthy. But if you're healthy and you're competing and you haven't defended it in a year, they should take that away from you and then automatically create a number one contenders match, right? Things like that, I think, should be created. And that's a pretty wide latitude, right? you got a full year to sit on this thing. That's pretty good, right? So um, that's sort of what I'm looking at. But I wouldn't want to have super strict guidelines either because that could get in the way of interesting fights or ones that might make a little bit more sense in the long run. Like, for example... Cody Garbrandt wasn't the number one contender, but he got that fight, ultimately it made sense, and now you've got another great fight on your hands. So I would want to live in a world where you could match make like that. DC Sports, as a sports fan, which is more devastating, the fall of RG3 or the fall of Gilbert Arenas? Definitely RG3. Agent Zero had a love-hate relationship with everybody here. All right, true-false. Habib Tony doesn't go to the judges. Ooh. Ooh, that's a good question. Hmm. Does not go to the judges. False. Francis Ngannou will fight for the heavyweight title in the next 18 months. Um, he's got a big test on Saturday. I'll say true, but I don't really know. Weidman loses to Musasi, then moves up to light heavyweight. He might. I'll say, uh, I don't know if that's true, but I'll say false, but it's very possible. Dillashaw and Cruz will fight for the Bantamweight title again in late 2017. Probably. No, wait. Uh, false. Joe Duffy will re-sign with the UFC after beating Reza Madati. I don't know, man. I guarantee you that Bellator is going to want their hands on, on him because they are going to Ireland already twice in, like, what, six months? I mean... If not closer to proximity than that, so I don't know about that. Mirsad Bektich will have more potential to become featherweight champion than other prospects like Yair, Choi, and Ortega. I know Sean Sheehan thinks so, but I don't. Although, obviously, he's a tremendous prospect. Fight in 2017. False. Let's see. Golly, I'm going to down this thing. Is Musasi the right fight for Weidman right now? 
Luke, you've spoken a lot about how Chris Weidman losing two straight fights in vicious fashion is troublesome, and that he should look for somewhat of a tune-up fight to get back on track. Now that the Musasi fight is signed and official, and a bunch of you guys tweeted me when that happened, do you think this is the right move? Chris could certainly win this bout, but Musasi is on quite a streak, and Weidman can't afford to lose three straight. I don't want you to speculate on hypothetical circumstances, but what will happen if Chris loses this fight? Well, as you saw above, he could easily go to light heavyweight. He's a big guy. So that's part of it. But let's just, for the time being, let's look at Gagard Musasi's record, shall we? I had him on my show last week. He was funny. Sort of. Pardon me. Okay, so he lost to Jacare in September of 2014. Then he beat Dan Henderson. Then he beat Costas Philippou, right? Then he loses to Uriah Hall on that thing that he did. Right in September 2015, you can call it a fluke, you can call it not a fluke, whatever your view on that is. But since then, he beat Talis Laitis, then he stopped Tiago Santos in the first round, stopped Vitor Belfort in the second round, and then stopped Uriah Hall easily in the first round. Right. So, if you again, it depends on what your view is and whether it's a fluke or not. Right. But if you discount that, he beat Henderson, Philippou, Laitis, Santos, Belfort, and Hall, and he fought four times in 2016, and he says he's very, very healthy. Now let's contrast that with Chris Weidman just a little bit here, right? How many times did he fight real quickly in 2016? Four times. Um, in 15, three times. In 14, three times. That's a pretty active schedule, okay? So let's look at Chris Weidman. So and Chris Weidman had two fights in 2013, one fight in 2015. Excuse me, one fight in 2014. I apologize. He had two fights in 2015. One was a Vitor Belfort win, and the other one was the brutal loss to Luke Rockhold. And then he had one fight in 2016 where he got brutally KO'd in that one. So he's been significantly less active. They have some measure of the same competition in the case of Vitor Belfort, uh, and Weidman stopped him a little bit quicker. But then after that, he's been absolutely wrecked. So... You could easily argue, well, he had tougher competition. That should make a difference, and maybe it does. Um, but to me, the activity there is, I mean, Musasi is on a hot streak, man. He is right now at, at the best he's been in a long time, not really because of who he has beaten, but if you speak to him, you know, he was dealing with, especially when that, that second Jacare fight, a ton of different injuries that he says have now healed, including his knee. He just feels a lot better. He acknowledged that Wyman's going to be a better wrestler and a bigger, potentially even stronger guy, but that um, he just has a lot of answers for him. And, you know, uh, I don't think that's the main event, so I don't know if that's going to be a five-round fight. If it, uh, sounds like it's not going to be. sounds like it's going to be three. But that that's a look. Chris Wyman is good enough where that's always going to be a winnable fight. You know, Chris Wyman was a guy who I believe was going to beat Anderson Silva the first time. Um when I think a lot of people were like, ah, oh, he's slow and he's this and he's that. He is those things, but he's also a disciplined guy who sticks to a game plan for the most part. Now, Romero made him pay when he had a bit of a, I won't call it a lazy shot, but a too risky of a shot. Romero crushed him for it. Okay, credit to Romero. But, um, you know, Weidman's a talented guy, but Weidman is, as we sit here now, is 32 years old and is coming off of inactivity paired with brutal stoppage losses, including one that was absolutely devastating. 
If that is not a cause to take a former champion and give him something of a tune-up-ish level fight, which I granted are hard to come by in the UFC, I don't know what is. This is a guy who could be right back on top, who could be a very big star again. You have seen it's not merely that beating guys you're supposed to beat um, helps a person psychologically rebound and then physically rebound, but it gets the crowd to like him again because if they like when when uh, Michael Chandler beat Derek Campos. It's like, okay, right, here's that knockout power that was missing. And you have to have, you know, measured uh, expectations or measured, you know, um, measure yourself in terms of what that actually means in that moment. But as a step towards getting back to where someone is, these this thing works. This process works. Um, we know it works. We've seen it work in MMA. We've seen it work in boxing. We've seen it work in other places as well. I don't know why they're so averse to it. Now, they need bigger fights to sell these cards, but... You know, is that a reason? I mean, that's stepping over a dollar to pick up a quarter uh, a little bit here. So I guess that they must feel like they have to do something to get, you know, they need a New Yorker on that card in, in, in Albany. They need, or Buffalo, excuse me. They need, um, they just need something big to help move it along. And I guess that's the way to go about it. But this is not, if you're a, if you're a guy who's in his late 20s and early 30s and you've had a rough stretch of it and you're still in the organization, you know, I know these fighters always feel like I could beat anyone. I can do anything. I don't need a tune-up fight. I asked him after the Rockhold fight, do you need a tune-up? Or, yeah, I said, like, do you need a tune-up fight? Why are you taking an immediate rematch? He's like, I don't need a tune-up fight. Okay. I mean, the argument for me only got stronger, you know, and maybe he doesn't. Maybe he'll go in and he'll crush Musasi. But if he doesn't win against Musasi, can we finally all agree that there it would have been much better served in the long run having a tune-up fight? I just don't I don't understand. So I guess we'll see what happens. Um even if he beats Musasi, it doesn't mean that he needed a, he didn't need a tune-up fight. But you know, these are they have a he has fifteen fights to his credit to his name. How many is he ultimately going to have? Another fifteen? Doubt it. Probably closer to twenty twenty-five. Right, twenty-five fights is probably what he's going to have when it's all said and done, give or take. Right, you need to make sure that you get the best out of him for those next ten fights. And I don't think throwing him. Anderson Silva, Lyoto Machida, Vitor Belfort, Luke Rockhold, Yoel Romero, and then Gagard Musasi when he's on a two-fight losing streak is necessarily the best way to maximize that. But that's just me. Who do you think is next for Chael? He had a horrible showing versus Tito, and I feel like this kills fan interest in most matchups for him, except maybe Vanderlei. Also, can this be chalked up to ring rust, or is this the version of Chael we're going to consistently see? The last one, I don't know. We, it's impossible to say if this is how it's always going to be because this was his first time back after three years. You do have to give him some kind of leeway in terms of rehabilitating himself to something else he would have been. I think he's going to go back and rethink a lot of things um, in terms of what he's doing in terms of either prep, how much he wants it, what he really wants to accomplish, those kinds of things. So so we'll see the second time out. I have, I have, I have some optimism that he can be uh, more than he was on that day. I just don't. That just was a really you know, listless performance from him. But I think it was Ben Folks on Twitter who was saying, you know, if anybody can convince people that the story, you know, the music will go on, it's Chael. And he's going to have his work cut out for him in terms of doing that. But I do believe that he can fundamentally transform even yet again how people view him and what he's capable of. Now, at some point, he does have to marry that with what he does in the cage. He can't just do it without any kind of real-world results. But... Uh, I don't think we can really say, oh, well, those days are long since over. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's the place we're in right now. Revitalizing the heavyweight division. 
Ngannou, DC, Rumble, and Jones. This weekend, we might see Francis Ngannou emerge as a heavyweight contender and pump up some long-awaited fresh blood into the division. That is true. I would also like to see DC, Rumble, and Jones move up and revitalize the heavyweight division. I know it would drive light heavyweight, but if they left, I would rather see DC versus Stipe than DC versus Bader. What do you think? I mean, if those guys leave, all you have left is really Gustafson at light heavyweight. So, And Jared Cannonier and, I guess, Glover. Um, so, yeah, it would decimate it, but I agree with you completely. Having those guys go up to heavyweight would just be awesome. Remember, Rumble already beat Arlovsky, took some of his teeth in World Series of Fighting. So it's not like he can't compete, you know? Um, yeah. Even, even if for a night, if they wanted to moonlight up there, it would be great. I completely agree. And we'll see what happens with Cain Velasquez, too. I would like to see him get a few more runs in. People asking about UFC London, I recommend you follow if you don't already. I'm sure most of you already do. If you don't, follow my colleague, Ariel Holwani, on Twitter. He is following the situation. I think we'll have updates as they are available. Uh... one did not get a ton of wrecks but i'm going to read it anyway true or false when you compare john jones and conor mcgregor there is no doubt that jones should be ranked higher in the pound for pound rankings however conor mcgregor is a far better striker true a big reason why mcgregor is costly doing one million pay-per-view buys is that people always think he is going to lose no that's not true here's what's true conor mcgregor is in the and i mentioned this after 205 because it was amazing to watch the reaction of that. Now, was that the best Eddie Alvarez I've ever seen? No, but irrelevant. Or it's not that relevant. Conor McGregor is in this position. His detractors think he is a continual fraud who is this close to getting exposed. And his supporters think he can basically walk on water. Boy, that is a great place to be. <laughs> Because those who love you want to see you go out there and work your magic. And those who believe you are a fraud, they just know, know that you're going to get, excuse me, that he is going to get absolutely starched his next time out. They know it. In their minds, that's what they, they feel like is as true as the sun coming up in the morning. They just know. And if it doesn't happen the next time, it'll happen the time after that. And even though you might say, well, okay, but look how much he's, look how much success he's had. Uh, at some point, you have to recognize there's a body of work of achievement here. And they'll say, no, it doesn't matter. And then his supporters, his die, not all of them, but his diehard ones, right? They'll be like, you know, so what? He lost to Nate Diaz. Nate Diaz, Nate Diaz should be a heavyweight. Nate Diaz is a heavyweight, right? Nate Diaz, Nate Diaz is bigger than me. Where? doesn't matter, man. It's twice his size. Look at Nate Diaz. Nate Diaz is like, what, 5-5 five and five at, at welterweight or something? But in any event, uh, or 5-5 five and five at, at lightweight, whatever. Uh, point being is they will excuse any shortcoming or ignore it because it do, they don't care. It doesn't fit their narrative, their truth. Because their truth is they know Conor McGregor is going to go out there and just waste somebody. And he's going to do it with aplomb, and he's going to get up there, and he's going to do this. He's going to do the Aaron Rodgers, you know, double check thing. He's going to do all that stuff. And they just know it. And that's the position that he's in. And that is such an enviable position because everybody wants to see you there. Everybody. Either you want to be a witness to greatness or you want to be a witness to fraud. But in either case, you want to be a witness. 
Uh, Junior Dos Santos has a better chance of finishing Stupid Miocic than Miocic has of finishing him. False. I feel sick when I hear Brendan Schaub say Habib Nag Nagu Murdov, Paige Van Ants. I don't know. I haven't heard him say that. Analysts say that McGregor doesn't stand a chance against Mayweather in a boxing match just to not sound stupid, while they truly think that McGregor might have a chance against a 40-year-old smaller Mayweather with a shorter reach. I'm sure some do. Uh, a lot of people give credit to Conor McGregor and Dominic Cruz for knowing how to handle a loss, but Chael Sonnen doesn't get enough credit for being one of the first guys to do it. That is true. I went back and I watched his – go back and watch on YouTube because you can find it. Google or YouTube, search for – I mean, Google owns YouTube, but search for uh, Chael Sonnen post-fight press conference UFC 117 and go look at what he says. It's amazing. In 2017, Conor McGregor versus anyone does not do below 500K pay-per-view buys, while Floyd Mayweather versus a lot of guys has a big chance of doing below 500K buys. Yes, Conor McGregor is probably hotter right now. If that's what you... I know I know, I know MMA fans believe that he, there's a real strong argument for Conor being the A-side, but there's not. There's no argument for it. He is more popular right now, but that's a different argument. Uh, Robin Black and Ariel Hawani are the two biggest Conor McGregor fanboys that I know. No, not even close. And I don't think they're fanboys. Every time I watch a star, a dominant champion lose, so Aldo, McGregor, Cruz, I appreciate more what John Jones has, was able to do in this sport. I already did. I didn't need them to see. I didn't need them to fail to see that. The gap between Amanda Nunes and Ronda Rousey was bigger than the gap between Mickey Gall and CM Punk. Not really. Because if she was able to clinch and get her to the ground, you would see it be very competitive, if not Ronda dominant. There's no portion of the game where you would see that between Mickey Gall and CM Punk. There's no portion where that skill gap exists. Well, that 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 uh, it'd be that narrow. Nunez's talk of retirement. Do you think Nunez's recent comments about wanting to retire after two or three fights hurts her within the UFC? As why would they put her their promotional machine behind someone who will be gone in about a year? They'll put their machine behind someone who is popular enough for it to make sense for them to use it. And I think after being Ronda Rousey, let me tell you something. It's a lot harder to get an Amanda Nunes interview than it used to be. I can tell you that, boy. Um, she's a lot She's a lot more in demand. So if people want to see her, they'll still put effort behind her. Don't get me wrong. And I think there's a case to be made that after after beating Ronda the way she did, that her stock went up for sure. Is pay-per-view the only way for MMA? Interesting question. MMA and boxing is very much pay-per-view driven TV sports, but could there be a successful way where the UFC and others based their income on other models? Sure. That's what uh, Strikeforce did. and That's what um, Bellator's doing. They do it in other sports, and here in Europe we have no tradition of pay-per-view. All the big TV sports, mainly football, soccer, is based on someone buying the rights and making money out of them. Couldn't that release some of the pressure of having to make money fights all the time and preventing the entertainment aspect being taken too far on the expense of the sporting aspect? What do you think? It's a good question. Um, the truth is, though, I, I certainly I, I do not want to speak out of turn for Europe, but um, it's interesting. MMA is uh, a very a very feast or famine kind of business. It's not the same as soccer, right? At least soccer in Europe. Um, soccer in Europe, you have your first division, second division, third division, fourth division. Even then, you know, you've got your your uh, academies, right? Real Madrid has Castilla. 
um, there's just this there's just this, this willingness to watch it. Obviously, I'm not saying that second and third division, these guys are making tons of money, far from it. I mean, they're, you know, hand to mouth places, but um, there's just a lot more tolerance and interest in that kind of thing generally. It's not, it's not as, um, its existence is not as tenuous and it's all built on this larger system. MMA just doesn't really work that way. There's just not enough people on a consistent basis who have that kind of deep appetite for it or that kind of cultural um, foothold in to, to make that work. And that's not the case for all sports, obviously, in Europe or the United States. But um, you would have to have incredible TV rights to make this kind of thing operate. And um, given the existing talent pool, it's not so easy to pull off. It can be done. But you can see what WME has to do. They'll have to dramatically shrink the amount of pay-per-views while dramatically boosting what it costs to go to a full TV rights model. And even then, there's long-term and questions about whether or not the TV model is good for sports anyway. You know, what happens when, um, if cords keep getting cut, how is the NBA going to be able to pay all of these guys' salaries when that money came from um, this new TV deal, right? This is a, this is a real concern. So um, I just feel like when you see these other models where people work it exclusively off television, it can be done. Certainly, Bellator is not the world's biggest organization, but... Uh, typically, in you know, North North America, what are the ones that do that? All the other ones, right? Um, you know, um, uh, NFL and, and MLB and NHL and, and NBA, and, and then you have other sports properties that you know ESPN will pay a little bit of money for to put on. You know, college women's softball. You see a lot of that. Little league baseball. We'll use that. Badminton, bowling, but they don't pay a ton of money for that, and so those guys don't make a ton of money, and so. It becomes very complicated. The answer is it can be done, but the interesting part about pay-per-view is that um, pay-per-view makes MMA more American and more Canadian than it ordinarily would be. It tethers promoters who want to make the most amount of money and who can make the most amount of money to doing so here. But I think if there's ever a time, and I've mentioned this before, if there's ever a time where pay-per-view goes away, um, I think you'll see a deeply increased interest in globalized MMA because you will no longer be tethered to that market uh, and those locales in a way that you were before. I could be wrong about that, but I don't think so. I think that once you, if they're able to make the same amount of money without having to use pay-per-view, you won't have to cater to North America in ways that you've ever had to. So um, I actually think though that pay-per-view has been a real strong savior for them. Like on the one hand, you know, what's on pay-per-view, professional wrestling and pornography. And to, I mean, people steal pornography, but it's still on there, you know, um, and, you know, some boxing and that's really about it. There's not really a whole, and you can guess, I guess, you know, movies on demand or something, but the truth of the matter is when you could argue the UFC missed the TV rights boom in terms of the money, which is to maybe some extent true, but they have kept their products safe from, or I should say partly insulated from changes in the um, in the cord-cutting phenomenon, which makes their choice of going back to the TV rights model ostensibly for $400 million plus a year quite the curious choice. So, uh, Paul Daly versus Rory McDonald. Daly called out Rory after his sensational KO win on Saturday. 
this fight is made. How do you see it playing out? I see Rory wrestling him for three to five rounds and probably submitting and stopping him there. Uh, that's what I see. On the feet, though, it would be a great fight. Garbrandt getting the McGregor treatment. I don't know about that. Garbrandt's MMA record, and notice he has yet to face a high-level grappler. All the fighters he has. What? Are you high? You Tanquino. What are you talking about? <laughs> Tanquino is one of the best jiu-jitsu guys on earth. Someone says, by the way, pay-per-view has become a much more prominent in UK boxing market. All the major fights, even lesser fights, i.e. Hay versus Baloo, are now on pay-per-view. And Anthony Joshua fights on pay-per-view. That might be the case. Just a lot easier for promoters to make money that way. Uh, and also, Cruz is a great wrestler, too. Like, that's not true, true at all, man. That's not even close to being true. Also, Cruz, uh, McGregor, ha one more time, Garbrandt has a background in wrestling. McGregor had no background in wrestling. UFC on Fox 23-minute event. Who do you favor in the women's bantamweight fight, Valentina or Pena? Valentina's chances against Nunes. How do you think Pena would fare against the champion? Man, this, I am so pumped for this fight. I don't know. Are y'all pumped for this one? I don't know. I feel like I'm on an island here a little bit on this one. Most of the time, everyone's like, yeah, I'm pumped up for the fights this weekend, and I'm all you know, gloomy and jaundiced. And I'm like, ah, I don't care. But this time I'm like, I'm super stoked for this fight. I don't know why. I'm just like, I guess I, I guess it's because I'm a big time believer. I'm a big time believer in both those ladies, to be honest, in Shevchenko and Pena. But something about Shevchenko has caught my imagination, man. She's an interesting, interesting person, like this dancer who's also a competitive weapon shooter who can also fight her ass off, you know, like, that is a that is a very talented lady who who should be paid attention to. Um, but so is Juliana Pena, man. Juliana Pena is full of vinegar and piss. She gets right in your face. She's a born fighter. Uh, she has a great style. She has super solid ground game. I really uh, respect her abilities on the mat. So to me, this really comes down to a bit of striker versus grappler. Now I know that Shevchenko was able to at least mostly neutralize. What Amanda Nunes was able to do to her on the ground, but nevertheless was in a losing position, such to the extent that the fight went there. I mean, a lot of it was just boring, posing off too, right? As I recall, if I'm recalling that correctly. But um, nevertheless, um, Valentina has a big advantage on the feet. I think, as we all can agree, Pena much more so on the ground. Um, I tend to think that the gap between Valentina and Valentina and Pena is narrower on the ground. Then the gap with them on the feet, then the gap on the feet is pretty significant. Um, I do think Pena is better on the ground, but I don't know if she's better than Valentina to the extent that Valentina is better than her on the feet. But you get the idea. Like this is this is going to be. I'm telling you, man, this is going to be such a fun scrap. I'm so looking forward to it. You know, gun to my head, forced to flip a coin. I'm thinking Shevchenko, but I can easily see Pena going in there, taking her down, passing to mount making her make bad choices on the ground and snatching the neck. I can really see that. So this is this is going to be a fun one. And I kind of want I kind of want Valentina to win just because I feel like kind of, you know, I just find her to be a very fascinating figure to have those kinds of talents and have the background that she does and you know, man, and I was I'm you know me, man. My wife's an immigrant, my mom was an immigrant, you know. I have a soft spot for people who are out there trying to do media and they're working through a second or third language. Uh, if you've never heard her Spanish, it's pretty close to fluent. It's way better than mine. 
Um, you know, I kind of I kind of appreciate that. She got caught in Peru in the middle of a shootout. I mean, you know, but you know, Pena's got an amazing story as well. So, um, I, I am very excited about that main event. Very, very, very excited. Big stakes, big intrigue for me, and I guess we'll see how it goes. Nate Diaz being shelved. What are your thoughts about Nate Diaz saying the UFC was benching him in an LA Times interview? I have not read that. I I I tend to think the Diaz brothers say a lot of things f- uh, that contradict each other. That um, it, it's sometimes on purpose. Like they're not dummies, you know. Far from it. Um, I just tend to think that you know if you if you don't want to fight anyone but one or two guys and they don't give you that, they're not putting you on the shelf. You know what I mean? Uh, Robbie Lawler. Some quick questions about Robbie Lawler. Do you know where he is going? I don't, man. I've been trying to keep up with this. I'm having trouble with it. Was the split from ATT amicable? I, I'll have to pass on these ones, guys. I'm sorry. I don't know about the, the Robbie Lawler stuff. Luke Thomas, the matchmaker. Well, that's a terrible idea. Luke, if you were the matchmaker in the UFC and you could make any fight, uh, you know, disregarding money or if the fighter would take it, like I could just pair two donks up, uh, what would I want to see? Ooh, I would say a few of these. Let's go through some of these. Ready? Uh, Andrade versus uh, Ian Jacek, right? I would want to see Shevchenko versus Nunez again. I understand I'm not saying these are the best fights you can make. These are just the ones that I want to see. Um, I would want to see, I would want to see Rousey versus Pena. I'd want to see that. I'd want to see. Um, I want to see Lesnar. <laughs> I'd want to see Lesnar versus Hunt too. <laughs> I'd want to see um, Ngannou versus Johnson, Anthony Johnson. I'd want to see Connor versus Habib. Connor versus Tony. I'd want to see Aldo Holloway. I'd want to see Connor Aldo too at one fifty five. Um, I'd want to see um, Diaz Lawler too, Nick Diaz. I'd want to see D- Diaz versus Connor three. Uh, I'd want to see, of course, we're going to see Habib versus Tony, so I don't have to worry about that. That's a super awesome fight. Can't wait for that. Um, I don't know. Oh, you know what John Fitch told me today because we were talking about Habib? Listen to this. He was saying for lightweight fighters, so 155. I was asking, like, what is it like to lock up with him? And he was saying uh, the two physically strongest guys, just like pure physical strength were, uh, that he ever dealt with that were 155 were uh, Gray Maynard and Habib, Habib Nurmagomedov. And he said at Habib, he goes, once Habib gets this around your back, you can't get free. He's like, it's almost impossible to get free. And John Fitch is not a small fry. That's a big welterweight, man. That's a very big welterweight. Um, I was sort of shocked to hear that. He was like, dude, if he gets his hands clasped, show is over. So, yeah, there's a few. You can you can have those. Justin Gaethje. Do you think he'll be signed by the UFC? Um, if you follow MMA analytics on Twitter, Paul Gift, he seems to think that World Series of Fighting is in trouble. And I think that if that is true... Uh, the UFC would be happy to have Justin Gaethje, sure. 
You think Crazy Horse will ever be in the UFC? No, and you don't want him in the UFC because he can't beat elite guys, even though he is a very interesting figure. Crazy Horse Bennett is built for Japan, where you can have some ability, including some impressive ability. Like He's got impressive knockout power. He is a good athlete. Now, he doesn't train right or anything like that, but um, you know I don't know if his head's all there, but he's a completely unique character, and he likes to be a character, Right, he likes to be this wild version of himself, and uh, that's what that's that's he's good for Japan. So like, let like you wouldn't want him in the UFC because he it would be no good. You wouldn't get that version of him. You know, they'd pair him up with some wrestler or something who would just you know submit him or something. That's not what you want. The Super Samoan versus the Ream. I think it's going to be similar to what you've been seeing. The Reem is going to want to work from the outside. You're going to see a lot of leg kicks, I think. You're going to see him from angles like Cerrone throws him. Not a lot of inside cut kicks, but a lot of outside ones to avoid big punches. You're going to see a lot of him going to the middle and to the head, just kind of staying out of any kind of punching range because what, is, what does he do, uh, Hunt? He doesn't really kick. He just sort of tries to land a big shot, and he's got to be in punching range to do that. And I think you're going to see a lot of push kick. You're going to see a really heavy kicking game from Overeem. And you're not going to want to see – hunt on the on the ground either so like um that's what i'm anticipating now can you do that without getting caught can you do that without you know can you really commit to a punch in punching range with hunt and being with speed potentially i tend to think that mark hunt has deceptive speed but we'll see but that's really going to be the key for uh overeem is we're working on the outside we'll see you know and also you know when you're fighting in the organization you're suing i wonder what that does to you mentally so it's gonna be something to to to, to, to see Biggest paydays I've heard of. What's the highest pay-per-view cut you've ever heard a fighter getting? I mean, a lot of those guys won't even tell me that in confidence. Um, I think what's the one I've ever been told was a big one. Um, uh, I had a former UFC champion told me one time he cashed a check for two and a half million. That was from, um, I believe, just pay per view bonuses. So that's all. You know, they don't always tell you these things. Habib, gun to your head, I don't know. Part of me is like, Habib's going to win the first two, maybe three rounds, and then Tony's going to stop all his takedowns and and smash him to pieces. And then part of me is like, you know, Tony's going to underestimate Habib and Habib's going to be able to submit him. You know, I really honestly, we're like, oh, I'll make a pick, make a pick. I don't, I don't know. I'm not saying I won't make a pick later, but I just love this fight. And I love the fight because it is so hard to predict. I know some people are like Habib's going to waste him. And I know some people are like Tony is, Tony's match, Tony's going to show him that he's been overrated and that his his undefeated streak is is trash because Tony's going to stop his takedowns and he's going to light him up on the feet and yada, yada, yada. And that, hey, man, I'm not betting against either of those guys in, in that sense. Like, you're talking about two very offensively potent guys. And one guy has a weakness in the sense that his game is limited, and another guy has a sense that his game is almost unlimited but defensively a little, little bit too open. We'll see. We'll see. But it's it's... I mean, MMA just doesn't come much better than that. Here or there, sure. But in general, that's that's the stuff right there. 
Ooh, top three Arnold movies. Obviously, you're going to go with Pumping Iron, but what are your other two in your top three Arnold movies? Predator, for sure. Terminator 2. And um, Predator, Terminator 2, and The Running Man. There you go. I watched The Running Man the other day. It was great. Uh, okay, y'all are y'all are more obsessed with this topic than I am, but here we go. I will try to make this fast because I know a lot of you don't want to talk about this. Tyron Woodley, here we go. All right, here come the downvotes. <laughs> hey, Luke, I watched Tyron on the MMA Hour, hoping to get on his side on the issue because he's an extremely likable guy, and I was hoping he gave clear examples of widespread racism from fans and mistreatment from the UFC. I get he may not able to be able to speak on UFC issues, so I let that pass. His main complaint of racism was being labeled things like freak athlete. I can understand his annoyance, but to me, it's like Ronaldo complaining about being labeled a goal scorer. You're tagged with the thing that's most exceptional about you, even if you have other traits. Yes, he's a fantastic wrestler and great MMA fighter, but the thing that he's in the top three in the world at, at any weight class, is athleticism. So that's what, as a fan, you notice most. Not every black fighter is called athletic DC, for example, whilst Lesnar is basically spoken about exclusively in terms of his freakishness. Uh, I really don't want to be insensitive to the struggle I'm sure he's been through. But to me, it seems like a teenager blaming everyone else as to why he's not McGregor famous. Even mentioned MacLife compared to Champ Cam. Champ Camp. I think that's his version of it. All his points raised have easy rebuttals. Lack of respect for black athletes. Jones and DJ widely seen as top two pound for pound. Cruz and DJ, even before his loss to Cody, was seen as below him on pound for pound two. Lack of pay and endorsements. He's in the pay-per-view business. What you get is correlative, correlative, uh, correlated, I think is what we're looking for, uh, with what you make. And I'm sure we have some subconscious prejudice of black fighters pertaining to strength and speed. And I'm sure he has trolls calling him terrible things online, but I feel neither are affecting his career views on the whole thing. Well, I've basically made most of them known, which I do not intend to repeat here, if for no other reason than brevity. But... Um, I will say just about this that uh, uh, how do I say this in a way that is helpful? Okay, um, I think basically you have a point. I think basically you have a point, which is um, I think we can all agree that whether we like Tyron or not, he is not a stupid person, right? That is not the vibe I get from him at all. Uh, he is formally educated, which, of course, is not necessarily indicative of intelligence. But um, you can tell when he is talking that this is not this is a guy that is thoughtful, that uh, has a strong awareness of himself and the world around him. Doesn't make him infallible, but it does make him bright. Right. So he's a bright guy. And so I feel like um, he is not in his mind inventing things and he is not in his mind uh, stating anything other than the obvious. And I said this before, there's going to be some people who we talk to about this issue, about to what extent black athletes face discrimination and in what forms and what they, what that looks like. And there's going to be some people who categorically refuse to even accept that it exists. And there's going to be some folks on the other side who believe it exists in all forms all the time. And most of us, I know some of you may not think this, but most of us are actually somewhere in the middle, depending on the, on the day or, or the issue. And, and that's sort of where I'm at with this one. Like, um, you know, talking about the athleticism thing. There was a study done by the Texas uh, by Texas A and M, 
measuring uh, press releases of assistant coaches in Division One football and the words they use to describe them. And it turns out when you have a white coach who was hired, I'm not making this up. I'll, actually, I'll link it in the comments after this. Um, it was a 2011 study. And if you have a white coach that they are commonly referred to as like strategic and smart. And if you have a black coach, they are who is hired as an assistant coach, you know, assistant quarterbacks coach, assistant, you know, linebacking core coach that they get referred to for their like camaraderie with the other athletes, you know, and itself is not a form of discrimination. We're talking about guys getting hired. It's just sort of these ways in which we go through describing, um, um, each other and what that set, what, what underlies those, those views and that, um, it's not out and outright, Oh, I hate this person or I don't wish to hire them. That would be an extraordinary form of discrimination. It's more of what sort of, um, prejudice do you have that perhaps you're not even aware of that it could be a part of. So when he sees, and I'm only, I can only imagine, I'm not here to endorse everything he says, but when he says something like, you know, I get called for a freakish athlete, I think this is what he's talking about, right? The goal score thing with Ronaldo is a little bit different because that's a performance issue. Um, I think when he says he gets labeled that way or that when someone compliments him for speaking well, these are common things I think African-American athletes have experienced that they get categorized in these easy labels that don't speak to their nuance, complexity, or frankly, even their real strengths. Like to me, certainly Tyron Woodley's athleticism is absolutely part of his identity. But at this point, I don't know how you can't talk about the fact that the guy is um, <laughs> you know, he is uh, a button pusher and not an intentional one, but like just you know, maybe an intentional one to an extent, but not, it's not, he's not a provocateur. It's not what he is. Um, he is a real bright guy speaking candidly about the world that he sees. And if you don't see all parts of that, you know, um, I'm not sure what to say about it because on the one hand you can say, you know, Woodley's going to make these claims that he needs to, he needs to evidence them. And I think that's true. Um, and it's going to be a hard sell for a lot of uh, Americans, white or other ones, to say, okay, people are people are complimenting you for your athleticism. Like, is this some terrible form of discrimination? And I, on the other hand, I can completely see his point, right? That he is that he is constantly being given these e easy, frankly, almost in a way demeaning labels because they reduce him to some sort of, um, you know, uh, attribute that is. Uh, that precludes him from getting any of these other attributes in the, in the common course of discussion around um, black athleticism. Um, I don't really know what to tell you guys. You know, I know a lot of you just are sick of this conversation to an extent I am too. Um, but I, I feel like, again, I'll just reiterate what I said on the MMA beat, which is, you know, you don't have to believe every, t every claim made by uh, any person aggrieved from a minority community about the ways in which they perceive themselves to be discriminated against. Um, but to listen because they may have a point and it may require a change in worldview, but I nevertheless believe it is my responsibility to listen um, because I don't think that their plight is entirely their doing. Uh, if it's a negative one, I think that there are a myriad of, factors that go into 
creating outcomes like this. Um, and the last thing I'll say is maybe he's not trying to convince you at all. You know, there's nothing you have to consider. It's like, I don't think he wants people to harass him on social media per se, or to, to, to angrily dismiss him. But on some point, like he, and I, again, I do not wish to speak for him, but it seems to me like he's going to talk about the world in which he sees and the way in which he sees it. And either you're going to agree with him or you're not. And he's not really going to be worried about it if he's not, because if he perceives it to be real, why does he have to convince you it's real? You know, it, it, that's just the way it is. And maybe some people are just hopeless. And maybe some people are just hopeless, you know, um, one direction or the other. Maybe you think he's hopeless. I don't know. But, um, you know, I think we can all agree that on some level, a guy like Tyra Woodley, who grew up in Ferguson, Missouri, probably has a good radar detector for racism. I can also agree that some of the things he's highlighted in terms of white audiences and what they perceive to be good examples of racism, um, he has not necessarily made the strongest arguments I've ever heard. But at the same time, I'm not also going to say that, our, you know, noting that he gets constantly labeled as athletic and explosive is some sort of uh, dismissible issue. That, that to me speaks to a larger way in which we have uh, um, uh, unfairly labeled uh, African-American athletes. And there's a long history of us doing that. We'll do that to some other ones. And that's all I'll say for it today. All right, let's go to the Twitter machine. As I'm sure all everyone's now pissed off and angry about talking about this. Thanks, guys. Uh, okay, true or false? Cyborg will headline a major pay-per-view holiday 2017 against Pena Shevchenko winner. Against maybe Duran Demi home winner or the winner of that subsequent fight, maybe. In an MMA fight, Sage or Dylan Dennis after six months of stand-up training with Connor. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> that's tough. I'd still say Sage. Oh, but Dylan Dennis can wrestle. I'd still say Sage. But, you know, I don't know. That's a good question. I'm not doing these like, what's your favorite, you know, Subway sandwich? I'm not doing that today. False game bread. Uh, Jorge Masvidal is among the top five boxers in the UFC. That might be true. Uh, why did Travis Brown leave Glendale Fighting Club? I mean, is that a real question? Woodley's message about race. Oh, I can't do any more of this, y'all. I just can't keep doing more of this. Please. I feel Bisping doesn't feel confident he can take on you while asking for a money fight, but yet ask for a Hendo rematch. It's just a tough fight with not a lot of upside, you know, for someone who's 37. What happened to Alexandra Albu? Had a great debut with Isabella Balderek, and it was, in my opinion, very marketable. <laughs> that means you had an attraction to her. Uh, I work for the IRS. Think I can get a job when Trump shuts us down? <laughs> Love your work. I don't know. Probably not. Have you ever had a nootropic like on its alpha brain? Uh, I have not. I don't give a damn what Savija's trainer said. Uh, did Ariel's talk with Hunt's lawyer change your view of the case? Not, I mean, it's, it was illuminating. I don't know if it changed my opinion. Have you heard whether GSP is still USADA testing? My understanding is he is still. True or false, if Chael did not train hard 
for the fight or make a real effort to win in the cage. It's not a fix, but it's still big news. True. That'd be true. If that's the case, that's true. <coughs> About SB Nation's coverage of MMA, isn't UFC enough to cover SB Nation? Yes. Then why cover Bellator and Victor if, if, uh, because it's the right thing to do? Uh, are you surprised the UFC gave in even a little bit to Tony Ferguson? No. They need big fights. How much they gave is also a really key consideration here. Um, what do you think of Timu Pakalan's next fight? I don't think much. Why well, been refused a tune-up fight? Whose responsibility is it to ensure a fighter takes logical fights? Manager, UFC family, etc. And I think coach should have a lot of input. But ultimately, if the guy himself is against it, what can you really say? You know what I mean? And I remember when I interviewed him after the Luke Rockle fight, I was like, dude, why not just take... Take a tune-up fight. He's like, because I know what I'm capable of, and I know what I can do, and I know I went to that fight super injured, and I'm sure he did. He's All these guys fight with a ton of injuries. Um, but that doesn't necessarily make it like a great idea. Someone goes, I heard you compare your Spanish to Valentina's pair. Hers is a thousand times better than mine. Can you greet your viewers in Spanish? No. <laughs> I'm taking classes, so no. And I'm learning every day. When it gets real good, I'll do a whole one of these chats in Spanish. But until then, no. Could you comment on the end of Mark's interview with Chael? Uh, I don't know, but I found out that Chael called him later and apologized, I think. So I think they're fine. Um, this is hilarious. Ever consider writing a book on manhood? Nope. I'm like E40 in, in choices. Do a live chat? Yup. Ever consider writing a book on manhood? Nope. Uh, have you ever considered letting Ariel on the MMA beat introduce you as the man in black a la Johnny Cash? No, not interested. Why do you think Cowboy is not headlining UFC Denver? Good question, because I think they believe that the women can headlining on, on Fox is not an accident, that people want to see it, that people are excited about some of these permutations and possibilities. Uh, we are talking about the division Rousey built. We are talking about the winner probably maybe getting a title shot against Amanda Nunes, the one who just clowned Rousey. I think that they believe that there's a strong uh, uh, reason to think, while it may not draw at the local gate in the way that you, you might anticipate, or he's, you know, they're not the natural headliner. I mean, I think a lot of people think that Cowboy versus Masvidal is the unofficial main event, the people's main event, if you will. I don't know what Ariel has picked, but um, you get the idea. Like, there's just a business reason to put them at the top of that card that speaks to larger considerations than the gate or what feels like a normal choice. And that worked, by the way, when they did Shevchenko versus Holm uh, on, on, uh, for UFC on Fox 20, I believe. I think this Ali Act thing will play out. I think it will not get through Congress, and I think if it does, uh, Trump will veto it. I am quite confident of that, which is amazing because all the guys pushing it are Trump guys. Um, Fitch told me today he voted for Trump, and of course, uh, Askren vocally supported him. There are enough women on the roster that the UFC are making enough fights, I guess. I don't know what that means. If Habib and Woodley fought... That's a racist question. Um... Oh, wait. This is a racist question, or am I, am I off here? If Habib and Woodley fought, who would be Harambe? <laughs> I don't know. True or false? UFC visits Sweden in 2017-2018. True. Does Johnny Hendricks have what it takes to become a legitimate title threat at middleweight? I don't think so, but I'm not really ready for 
writing him off just yet, but certainly, man, it does not look awesome for him at middleweight. What was the first UFC pay-per-view you ever bought? Ooh, bought. Um, I watched a lot of them after the fact until later. Gosh, I want to say 32, 33. I can't remember which one of those two I bought. Somewhere in there. Um, if Cowboy wins his fight on Saturday, how long till a title shot? He'll have at least another fight before that title shot, I suspect. Are pre-fight medicals of any point if fighters fight medicals? If fighters keep quiet about injuries, yes, I'd rather them do it. I'd rather them do blood work. I'd rather them do eye tests. I'd rather them do MREs. But we can also grant that when Cowboy Cerrone literally telling me yesterday, listen to Cowboy Cerrone's record. Okay, everyone's like, oh, he fights a lot. He fights all the time. Did y'all realize this? I didn't even think about this until I had him on the show yesterday. Listen to this. This is Cowboy Cerrone's record. Okay. In 2013, he fought August, January, May. Excuse me. What am I saying? In 2013, he fought January, May, August, November. That's four times. In 2014, January, April, July, September. Four times. In 2015, January, January, May, December. Four times. In 2016, February, June, August, December. In 2013, 2014, 2015, and 2016, he fought four times every single year. So I asked him, I was like, dude, how do you stay injury-free enough to do that? He goes, who said I was injury-free? I go, what happens when you have pre-fight medicals? He's just, he basically was like, he didn't use the word lie. He's just like, I just told him I'm fine. He just doesn't tell him the truth. you know. So if they can't catch it on whatever the other medical screenings they go through are, um, and they're not doing full body scans for soft tissue damage. He just keeps going. And I was like, oh my God, four fights, 16 fights in four years in MMA at the highest level. That is insane. And his only loss, his only loss was in 2013. He had Pettis, Dos Anjos, and then one loss again to Dos Anjos in 2015. In that span, he beat Matt Brown, Rick Story, Patrick Cote, Alex Oliveira, John McDessie, Benson Henderson, Miles Jury, Eddie Alvarez, Jim Miller, Edson Barboza, Adriano Martins, Evan Dunham, and KJ Nunes. Jesus Christ. What a man that guy is. Are you kidding me? What does Kelvin Gastelum's future look like if he beats Belfort? Does he go back to welterweight? I think so. I think so. So now with the removal of Brown and Lewis... Do you think two-way guard remains the same or is it move on as is or is it a late add-on? I doubt there's a late add-on at this point unless some other card gets messed up or something. I think you've got what you got. And look, I'll say this about the 208 card. Not a ton of star power on it, but there's some really decent fights. Really decent fights. Um, and you should... Uh, uh, I'm not saying you have to buy it, but respect it. Some Brazilian got caught, it appears, for or caught. Potential violation by Usada. We'll see. Uh, what are your favorite exercises after deadlifts? Well, that's pretty easy. Rows, rows, and more rows. Um, you can do T-bar rows. You can do bent over rows. You can do, uh, I mean, any, anything where you've got a row. Yes, dumbbell rows, the whole bit. Lots of rows. Um, overhead pulls, um, both inside grip, outside grip, never wide. 
lots of stuff like that. Okay. We have to call it a day there. Um, you can email me with any questions at luke.thomas.espionation.com. Appreciate you guys watching. We'll have coverage from Denver this week. Stay tuned on this YouTube channel. Subscribe, like the video, tell folks about it. I always appreciate it when you do. There is an MMA beat tomorrow, so stay tuned for that. And, uh, yeah, man, thank you guys so much for watching. I appreciate it. And until next time, stay frosty. <laughs>